I'll be continuing where I <clears throat> how many people were here last week? That's the problem on Wednesday evenings. I just have to disregard it. Is that it's almost, uh, there's some people, are, there's some continuity, but very different people turning up. And um, I'll be repeating some of this anyway, but um, <clears throat> see what you can figure out from the talk. <laughs> uh, there'll be an opportunity to talk it over uh, as well. Um, what I've been doing is uh, giving uh, some commentary, some reflections on the uh, Dhanapaka Sutta by the Buddha. Uh, and that's where it's sometimes entitled, Ping, uh, King Pasanedi Goes on a Diet. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the context within which all these talks have been given, it's been going on for about this theme has been going on for about three years or so on Wednesdays. <clears throat> Fortunately, I have compassion for you, not every Wednesday. Um, has been a, a view of the Buddha's teachings that is not, that it's not simply a collection of techniques and methods and forms, which you then learn, master, and then somehow you're propelled to have into some space where you have no more problems ever again a pain-free zone of some sort. And, and sometimes people have a model in their head, which is just a replica of how we've been brought up. That is it's kind of a stepladder model that if we practice sincerely and hard for many years, somehow at the end of the rainbow, uh, there's a pot of gold, and we get enlightened to some degree. That's one model. Another model is one that focuses more on the process and that the means and the end are the same thing. Clearly, that's the one I favor. Uh, because all we ever have is now. And so the emphasis in this approach is how to take care of now, this moment, our life that's happening right here and now. And uh, it's not that it says there's nothing, that, that something like, I prefer the term awakening to enlightenment. Uh, because practice really is a degree to which the mind awakens itself, becomes clearer. Um, it, the, the, its capacity to see and understand uh, it becomes more refined. The seeing becomes more uh, accurate. And wisdom grows out of the seeing, real wisdom, not just verbal wisdom. Uh, there, is, there are wise words, and they have a place. They're important. Uh, some of them are tonight. Uh, the Buddha said, and then I'll do my best to comment on it. But uh, that's one kind of wisdom. But its value is in that it leads to the direct seeing. And uh, insight, real insight, is something that comes out of that. You don't think about it. It doesn't come from uh, analyzing or thinking, even though that can help lay the groundwork. That's what we're more familiar with. And so uh, at the beginning, this can be quite... Uh, foreign to everyone, especially if you've had some education. So what's been emphasized is that, of course, there are techniques and methods, and there are forms, retreats, and different ways of sitting and walking. And if you go through the different Buddhist schools, even within Vipassana schools, the variation is tremendous. There probably are hundreds of techniques and methods. Just walking meditation alone. I think I could rattle off about 20 or 25 
without an more. Uh, so the emphasis that I'm – it's not that the methods and techniques uh, don't have value. They do. Uh, they're quite precious. We teach them here. I've benefited from them. But th- I think it has to be understood in the context of the way the Buddha taught uh, put an emphasis on inquiry, not on belief, not on uh, – faith has its role. Uh, you need a certain degree of conviction to try something to find out if indeed there's any value to it or if it's for you. I mean, even to play tennis, to learn how to do that, you have to, to some degree, mobilize the energy to get an outfit and a racket and go to the court and uh, get some instruction and try to do it. How else uh, can you, you – you, you may be able to figure it out and say, I know that's not for me. But uh, here – uh, the Buddha gives teachings, but in my understanding, and I'm hardly an expert on comparative religion, what's unique about this approach is there's tremendous emphasis on self-reliance and on confirming the teachings in your own, with your own experience, putting them to a test. So the truth is not because the Buddha said so or whoever, uh, but it's a beginning point. It's, a bit like a hypothesis in science that you test, and then you find out if indeed it's fruitful or not. If it isn't, you reject it. Even the Dalai Lama has said that if modern science shows some ways in which the Buddha is wrong, let's say he's doing getting quite involved in the brain research and meditation, he said then he would drop what the Buddha said. Uh, I think that's an admirable attitude. I can say that it characterizes uh, most religions, including Buddhism. I think we do, all of us, tend to get locked into a certain uh, way of doing things, and um, there's not enough inquiry, questioning, a fresh look at things. At any rate, uh, what my way of looking at it is, and it's not that it's original on my part, it's just my way of using the English language, is that the Buddha is saying, human race, you don't know how to live, just look around. Uh, if you disagree with that, of course you're entitled to disagree. Uh, but just turn on CNN at some point and find out if you think we do have, or well, read history. Uh, a friend uh, of mine and I, many years ago at the University of Chicago, we took some huge book. I don't, it was sort of the history up until that point, tremendous summary of history. We just opened it up and pointed anywhere. There's always war. There's always some kind of, some group is destroying some other group, uh, with a, a beautiful rap, whether it's for religion or an ethnic group or some kind of purity. Uh, and you can close your eyes and try it again. Uh, th- there it is. Okay, so that's on a large scale. Uh, but then it seems difficult uh, uh, to live. And so what the Buddha is saying, look, here's some help. And the teachings are an attempt to give us a, some guidelines to living. For me, uh, I don't consider, I'm not, the word Buddhism is an anathema to me. It's not an ism. Although everyone uses it, so it's just easier. I don't want to have to go explaining. It's, uh, Dharma is somewhat different. Uh, but for me, Buddhism, I'm using that term just because we're all familiar with it, is not an affiliation. I don't know when any of the holidays are. I'm, I don't, um, I'm not patriotic. In the sense that if the world had many more Buddhists, it would be a better world. I don't know. I've lived in Buddhist countries. 
After all, World War II, Japan was primarily a Buddhist country. Almost all the masters went along with the emperor. Of course, the uh, royalty was paying, subsidizing the monasteries. There were very few who broke from that and said this is a mistake. Okay. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that it's a guide to living. It's only a guide. But over and over again, what the Buddha is saying is, uh, learn how to live, and you learn how to live. Learning how to live can't be separated from getting to know yourself. And getting to know yourself is not exclusively reserved for sitting on a cushion for X number of hours or going off to a, a wooded area or a cave. That, those forms that have been going around for thousands of years, long before the Buddha, are, can be extremely helpful. They don't have to be. They can be misused like anything else. It can be an escape but they're not intended to be that. And so um, what uh, the Buddha is saying over and over again, even at, at just before dying, is to be a light unto ourselves. There is help in the world. It's not hopeless. There are some wise people who've come before us and who've learned something and, are, and have been willing to share it with us. And But nonetheless, it's for us to... Uh, take the wisdom or the counsel of the wise, but not to give it absolute authority. There's one sutra where the Buddha hammers this home. I won't go into it tonight. And so in this series, no matter what I talk about, it always has that underlying self-knowing. Self-knowing is something where you learn about yourself as you live. And it's I-N-G, not self-knowledge, because knowledge is something you accumulate. You, you put it, fill up notebooks and libraries, and uh, and then you refer to it. You have, you register it in your memory and draw upon it. Knowing is something that's valuable in the immediate moment when you see something clearly, and that seeing uh, when it becomes bone deep. And I'll try to make that as clear as I know how. That's understanding. The seeing and the understanding, and often action, can't be separated when the seeing becomes clear. It's not that first you see and then you act. To begin with, of course it is. And then the question is, do we live out what we understand? And often we don't. Um, this particular sutra is about a king. I, I think if I just read it. Once when the Buddha was living at Savati, King Pasanadi of Kosala ate a whole bucket full of food and then approached the Buddha, engorged and panting, and sat down to one side. Kind of us when we go to eat out. Okay. Buddha, you know, legal seafoods or places like that. Or no, more the uh, buffet at some place. The Buddha, discerning that King Pasanati was engorged and panting, took the occasion to utter this verse. It, this is a very short sutra, so bear with me if you don't like to hear classical teachings like this. Here's what the Buddha says. When a person, that means you, that means me. This is not, I'm, this is not for historical, uh, archaeological, uh, antiquarian, orientalism. It's, the, these sutras are either they're valuable for us right now to help us live or why we don't need it. Uh, there are plenty of academic things that are extremely helpful or other sources of wisdom. So, for me, I pick sutras to talk about that I've found to be as valid and as helpful now as they were 2,000, almost 3,000 years ago. So it's about you and I. 
when a person, of course, in this case is, is the king, is constantly mindful and knows when enough food has been taken, all their afflictions become more slender. They age more gradually, protecting their lives. Okay, uh, I'm just, I, I better give you the rest because uh, I'm then going to rant and rave for a while. Now, at that time, the Brahmin youth Sudasana was standing nearby. The king, Pasanadi of Kosala, addressed him, Come now, my dear Sudasana, and having thoroughly mastered this verse in the presence of the Buddha, recite it whenever food is brought to me, and I will set up for you a permanent offering of a hundred something or other kahapanas every day. So be it, your majesty, the Brahmin youth. In other words, replied to the king. In other words, uh, he's paying this young man before each meal just once to remind him of this verse, to repeat this verse. Okay. Then King Pasanada of Kosala gradually settled down to eating no more than a cupful of rice. Don't take that literally. You know. At a later time, when his body had become quite slim, King Pasanadi stroked his limbs with his hand and took the occasion to utter this utterance. Indeed, the Buddha has shown me compassion in two different ways, for my welfare right here and now and also for in the future. Okay, let's go back. And uh, I did some of this last week, and what I want to do, maybe tonight will be enough, if not next week, for as long as it takes. Um, if you just read this, uh, it seems rather um, superficial. Because what it's saying is, look, what's all this fuss with all these diets? Just be mindful, and you'll be slim and stroke your limbs, and they'll be nice, and you'll live a long life. Uh, would that it was so easy. Uh, now, I picked it because we live at a time when we're bombarded with all these different diets. And I say in advance uh, that if you have a reaction, let's say you feel you're overweight and uh, you feel intimidated by what I'm saying or insulted or self-conscious, our practice is about learning how to live. That's the place to practice, right here. You know, I'm not saying you should feel that. And then many of you seem nice and slim and, well, this has no relevance for me. I don't need a diet. I'm doing just fine. Okay, this is not just about diet. It's not, this is not an extension of Weight Watchers. <laughs> but if you just read this, what it is saying is that mindfulness uh, and what's implied here, and I'm going to go into that in great detail, or in some detail, uh, that wisdom, understanding what's going on, uh, can help you let go of what needs to be let go of. That is, learn how to improve your relationship to nutrition, to eating. Okay. Um, it, it is saying that. Uh, rather than will or uh, now what it's overlooking, of course, it's people are overweight for all kinds of conditions, chemical imbalance, uh, genetics, uh, in all kinds of reasons. And this is not, I'm not trying to tell you to lose weight, and I'm not trying to tell you to use this to lose weight. Uh, but what I would like you to, it might help you actually. And if so, that's fine, because I'm going to put it in the context of wisdom. All the Buddha's teachings, this is a wisdom path. 
whatever the Buddha taught, some of it may seem like it's very ordinary, it's in the service of developing wisdom. That's why it's called a wisdom path. Something is valuable insofar as it helps you wise up. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the art of living. Uh, it, just like any art requires skill, some learning a skill. Uh, this is perhaps the hardest skill of all. It's the skill in living, how to live, how is one to live. And as far as I can tell, it's an ongoing challenge because things keep changing as we change and as the world changes and as our situation changes. Okay, so uh, those of you who are fit as a fiddle, trim, lean and hungry, a lean, mean fighting machine, uh, maybe there's something here for you that goes beyond just uh, how much to eat. I hope so because uh, it's, uh, you, I hope it does because I intended to. We'll see, we'll see if I... I'm able to. Okay, so when a person uh, is constantly mindful. Okay, I'm going to skip to mindfulness first. That's a word that we all hear a lot of. Is anyone who's never heard the term mindful? If you've come here, it is omnipresent now. Everything, mindful parenting, mindful doctoring, mindful, tell me, whatever you want. We Mindful dentistry, mindful uh it, and it's just going to be more and more of it. Okay, mindful eating. Okay, now, I'm not against that, but the term has picked up, uh, carries such baggage uh, that it sounds that I have to make it clear what, at least in the, from the Buddha's point of view, what mindfulness is. The mindfulness does not have many of the things attributed to it. Some of the literature people, this is more contemporary people, who are saying mindfulness is embracing, affectionate, uh, compassionate looking. That's not what is meant by the Buddha at all. It's not against compassion. It's not against acceptance. But mindfulness has a very specific and definite meaning. And then there are other qualities of mind that need to accompany it for it to be effective. And that's what I'd like to go through because it isn't just sitting down and, oh, there's, for example, there's one method and this, this method is much more profound than sometimes it's the way in which it's misused is you just make mental notes, chewing, chewing, swallowing, swallowing, uh, looking, looking, reaching, reaching. You make mental notes. It's a Burmese method, a perfectly good method. And it's as if there's no emphasis on learning on learning about yourself, on learning about your relationship to the process of eating, of nutrition, seeing how your mind is uh, inseparable from what happens in anything you do, including eating. At any rate, what mindfulness means, it's more limited. That doesn't mean it's not valuable. It's quite valuable. All it means is to keep something in mind. So mindful breathing means to keep the breath in mind. Mindful walking means keep walking in mind. Mindful parenting, by extension, I, I never heard the Buddha, it's not in the Buddhist classical texts, uh, would mean keep parenting in mind. That means don't forget about it. Keep it in mind. Uh, the other stuff is a bit extra. Okay. So now we get to here, and when the, when the king tells, uh, when the Buddha tells the king to be mindful, he's saying keep the whole, keep eating in mind. Be mindful of what happens in this. Now, I'm going to add much more to it than these are. Some of this is like code, C-O-D-E. There are commentaries on this, which enrich upon it. And also, 
uh, I feel I have the right to free associate to it as well as uh, how it has helped me, and perhaps it will help you. I'm sure the Buddha won't care, wherever he is, uh, because I, in- I intended to serve all of us to help us wise up and learn how to live. Okay, so mindfulness would be what? Those of you, is, some of you may be here for the first time. Wednesday night sometimes has either people who are here for the very first time, meaning in a meditation setting for the first time, any meditation setting, or new to CIMC or very new to the practice. Um, but I would say that, aside from those who have never done it, uh, probably all or most of you do know that the mind forgets to be mindful of whatever, the breath. And so mindfulness is that in the mind which remembers to uh, keep the breath in mind, to come back to the breath. And we have to do that, as you know, again and again and again. So mindfulness in and of itself has a much more uh, sparse meaning. It doesn't have all these other connotations and qualities which exist, but the Buddha had separate language for it. Okay, so mindfulness is simply to keep in mind whatever it is you've decided to keep in mind. Uh, here, most important, seeing eating as just one example, one expression of living, is to keep how you live in mind. We're not that, mi- we're not that mindful of how we live. We're too busy doing it. We're too busy making a living. We're being prepared to earn a living. Everything is set up to earn a living, make a living, go to college too, so you can get a good living, have a good living standard. Uh, but there's not a whole lot on how to live. And what this is saying uh, is it's beginning to introduce that. It's beginning to say, uh, it's beginning to question, how do you actually live? Let's start with just eating. That's what I'm doing with this sutra, which is obviously not a trivial aspect of being alive. Okay. So mindfulness in the classical teachings of the Buddha, for it to be how the Buddha used it, it is always accompanied by sampajanya. It's sati sampajanya, sati hyphen sampajanya. Sampajanya can be translated as wise attention. Okay. So mindfulness is simply to keep in mind what you've decided to keep in mind. Sampajanya is to be alert, watchful, sensitive, and to watch what happens. Or it's to, as you pay attention, it's to see the consequences of what you're doing. It's to uh, be sensitive and alert to the, granted, the mind has come back to eating. But if there's no interest, there isn't an alertness, it's just still, oh yeah, mindful eating. But this is a degree of alertness, of sensitivity, of watchfulness, uh, and also part of what of that is is to watch uh, this is an extension of what runs through all the Buddha's teaching, cause and effect, karma, if you like, more romantic term, which is again picked up a lot of embellishments, many of them incorrect. But cause and effect, what is being said is uh, it would be hopeless. Why would we study how we live or pay attention if everything was fixed and set? Uh, what it's saying is, we have a we have a stake in how we live. We have we to some degree, to a great extent, can, we help make our life. We cre- help create, fabricate is often a translation. So it isn't just that it comes down from a cloud. God decided to punish us with a lightning bolt, 
but rather it's a natural consequence of the way we've been behaving. If you behave, and the, if you if you have X, then you get Y. If you don't have X, you don't get Y. It's very akin to scientific reasoning, to logical reasoning. And if you start paying attention, you'll see that a lot of things in life are not so mysterious, except the whole thing is. Totally. I mean, the deeper I go into this, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> don't tell anyone in the office. I mean. Uh, uh, for example, the fact that these the sounds are coming out of my mouth and they make some sense and you hear it and you make some sense out of it, even if it's not, not totally how I intended it. Amazing. You can see me. Wow. I can see you. There's a lot we take for granted about being alive. But there would be no science if there weren't some lawfulness to it all. And a lot of what Dharma is is seeing, learning the lessons that life has to teach us by seeing the lawfulness of it. And here, what we're mainly interested in is the lawfulness of how we live and what ways of thinking, feeling, speaking, and acting produce suffering for ourselves and for others, and what ways unskillful, and what ways of the same uh, are skillful in that they're beneficial, ways, in other words, the quality of the mind, because it starts there. And then out of that quality of the mind comes verbal behavior, and also physical behavior. That's learning how to um, unlearn ways of living that are unskillful, that produce suffering. The Buddha says in one of the earliest sermons, maybe the first one, he says, all I'm teaching is suffering and the end is suffering. That's the key. Okay. It's a good, solid benchmark so that if you say, well, what should I pay attention to? Uh, typically in a, in a given day, suffering doesn't mean just torment. It can mean subtle kind of unsatisfactoriness, incompletion, uh, anguish, and it can mean the, the worst torment that we go through. And so that's uh, what the Buddha is saying is this is, comes out of the mind. Okay. So sampajanya, mindfulness takes us to the process, in this case eating, if it were breath, Mindful breathing is to the breath. And Sampajanya is alert and watches, okay, now that I'm focused on the process of selecting food, raising it to my mouth, eating it, um, what's happening? In other words, there's an interest, there's sensitivity. And uh, the learning that comes out of what is it that gets learned? I don't know. You have to, if you pay attention, uh, or this isn't, uh, I, I don't want to open up a yogic, uh, Vipassana yogic manual and tell you what to do. It's you, you eat and you pay attention and the body is going to have a reaction. The mind will have a reaction too because we're alive. Okay, so Sampajanya adds that dimension of sensitivity, alertness, and seeing the consequences of particular actions. Granted, the mindfulness has taken you there. Everyone with me? Okay. Now, preceding that is the word consonant, to repeat that sentence. When a person, you, me, constant, mindful, constant here, uh, this is a very important term, too. Teaching these things uh, for some years now, uh, the way in which uh, students, yogis, all of us start talking, it's sort of like party line. You know, it's sort of like if you're a, com a communism is 
if it's not dead, it's dormant. But anyway, uh, there were certain, you know, certain, uh, it's in everything. There's a kind of universal discourse. Uh, becomes slogans and jargon and everyone starts sounding the same and think, and then agreeing and looking at each other and it, it looks like a conversation is happening. But it's, it's sort of out of Madame Tussauds waxworks. And they've stepped out and they're talking to each other. Okay. Um, what do I mean by that? Oh. Here's some of the things that people say now. Because everyone knows the right answer. If you hang out here, and let's say we have questions and answers, and when we do, we'll have it in a, little, in a few minutes, um, I usually will press to try to find out what do you mean by that. And here's what people typically say. Oh, I was with it. Let's say fear came up. Well, I would say, well, what, and then what? I say, um, I noticed it. I was with it. Uh, I was open to it. Give me a few more. You know, there, it goes in fashions, in style. What? I sat with, yes, I sit with, I sat with it. Uh, I was mindful of it. They were all fine. But then when you poke a little bit deeper, for example, uh, one of the ones that's in, in vogue now for some reason, started somewhere, is I noticed it. Okay, this is what I take for noticing. I noticed that, I noticed that there's, I noticed there's a figure up there, uh, the boss. They got a statue of the boss here, like Stalin or whoever. <laughs> Saddam Hussein? Okay. Uh, I noticed that it's there. Oh, I noticed what time it was. And that's part of life. Sometimes that's all that's needed. But uh, for transformation to happen, what is needed, and that's part of what constant means, uh, is a sustained attention, a sustained, uh, that is one that has continuity, that stays with what's happening and doesn't just flit around and you can't separate uh, this constancy with what is going on that you're constant about. For example, well, what does it mean to be mindful? We're back to that. And what does sati sampajanya mean? Well, uh, often what is said is mindfulness is non-reactive attention. That's not exactly true. Or is, I'm being pedantic tonight. Uh, mindfulness is the remembering to turn to the object. Uh, not being reactive is equanimity. Uh, and equanimity is very, very important. And what that means is, are you a, uh, means you're even-minded about what turns up. Let's say uh, you're eating some food and it tastes awful. Okay, there's the ability to stay with it, uh, even though, and you feel the awful taste, rather than, boo, boo, yuck. And you've just broken the thread of there's no mindfulness, there's no satis, there's nothing. Okay, uh, we're often running, and then the mind makes up stories about the cook and what are the, and especially if it's on a retreat here, what kind of a center is it? They should feed us better. We pay good, hard-earned money for. Before you know, there's a melodrama. Then you come to me, and I have to write, you know, to talk to the cook, and the cook looks at, up at the ceiling, and I look up at the ceiling, and we make up some conciliatory note, and we go back to the retreat. Okay. Um, okay. So uh, the attention, uh, the equanimity means you. And how does that happen? Well, it happens through the wise attention. You learn. You see that you were you weren't equanimous. Let's say a bad taste comes up. How do you? In other words, how do you? If you've been here for a while, you've heard the, the term equanimity, right? 
Okay, and it's a good term, isn't it? If someone if someone's equanimous or that's good, right? It is. Okay, uh, so you just decide. Oh, be even-minded. No matter what comes in front of me, I'll be fully attentive, and now I'll be uh, equanimous. You can decide that. Uh, but then life has a way of uh, overturning all of our decisions. And suddenly this taste comes up. Yuck. And we're aversive, and we don't even want to watch it. We just oh, uh, just set it aside. Um, in seeing that we did, weren't able, that it, it, it took us away from seeing. In other words, the art of seeing, clear seeing, and that's finally, if we put all these together, that's the art of pure observation. Uh, that's what frees us. And pure observation, of course, means you have to turn to something in life and attend to it. You have to stay with it and be interested. You have to sustain that interest. You have to be willing to learn from what it is that you see. Do you see what I'm getting at? I hope you do. Um, And how do you learn to be equanimous uh, you can't pass a law and say, from here on in, I will be equanimous. You can. Or make a vow. I will be equanimous. Or there are practices where you, where you cultivate that. They can be a little bit helpful. But my own personal experience, my own practice, and what I have much more confidence in is you develop equanimity by seeing the lack of it. That is, it's the, the via negativa. You don't do an impersonation of being even-minded. I'm very equanimous. I'm a Vipassana meditator, Zen meditator, whatever you, whoever, the brand name you prefer. Okay. Uh, so that you see that you do have preferences. Um, because the image that's been used since ancient times is for the mind to become mirror-like. The beauty of a mirror is that if a pure thing's, like here's an ancient example, dog poo-poo is put in front of the mirror. It reflects dog poo-poo. When the poo-poo is gone, the mirror is not tainted. It just shows what's next. Next, we put a holy object. Okay, It shows that. It's not any more pure after it's gone. The mirror is just there. It just reflects what's there. That's the beauty, uh, the incredible value of a mirror, in that it has no view or opinion. It just shows you. It teaches you about here, about ourselves. And so in seeing the absence of our ability to be steady in the face of whatever turns up, seeing that, little by little, the mind learns how to do it. And it can be learned. It's a skill. It's part of the art of living, is that the clearer we get, the more accurate the mind becomes. Obviously, as you start to see things closer and closer to the way they are, that means your behavior is in accordance with the truth, at least gets closer. If you're totally delusional, and make up a reality that bears very little resemblance in the extreme. We wind up in institutions for that. Uh, or we become uh, political leaders of certain... Uh, <laughs> no one in mind. It's just historical I'm talking about. Uh, it's a, so we're all projecting. But this is teaching us the art of clear seeing. Vipassana means insight, seeing into. And... Panya, which is another word for it, is wisdom, discernment, really getting the significance of it. Now, when I say uh, bone-deep understanding, you can have understanding that's conceptual. For example, if you read this and it says, just be more moderate. The Buddha says this over and over. Just don't eat so much, for goodness sakes. Okay, I understand that. 
great. And we do it for about 10 days. And then suddenly there's a celebration, someone's birthday, or we go out and eat. And then suddenly all kinds of rich desserts and uh, huge amounts of food. Out the window, gone. Okay. So the understanding had some power conceptual. The, the intellectual mind understood it. And then we decide it's satisfying. Oh, I get it. Just eat less, for goodness sakes. Okay. So we do that. But it doesn't have transformative power because it's still vulnerable, fragile. And it's easily uh, overrun by conditions of good food, good cooks, social occasion, uh, old tastes that refuse to go away. Was that me? Sorry. Um, I'm so in the moment, I don't remember where I was now. <laughs> there I go bragging again. I'm just covering up for the early stages of senility. Let's, um, what? Uh, well, no, but you can, what, yeah, there you go, okay, okay, so when you understand something, the, the understanding is bone deep, now, that doesn't only happen in meditation, sometimes the death of someone, or some horrible thing that happens to us, there's a teaching in it that, <clears throat> we're never the same, now, if it just is suffering at a deep level, and there's no learning from it, that's not what I mean, I mean a deep kind of learning so that you're never the same. You don't do that anymore. You can't do it anymore. You've turned the corner on that. Now, some of that we know. It's called growing up. There are certain things we look back. How did I ever make such a fool out of myself? Uh, I, was, I was sobbing for weeks because my dolly lost its arm or my, someone broke my toy cowboy. Uh, we look back, ha, ha, ha. But at the time, it was tragic. Okay, I Okay, that's a kind of learning, but we're no longer interested in that. We've naturally outgrown it. So the bone deep is usually where it's valuable, is that you're learning something that we don't want to learn. And that's why Dharma teachings and maybe all spiritual teachings, they're not necessarily teaching us what we want to hear. For example, if you hear what I've been saying, what the Buddha is saying is, you, you guys, all of us, you don't really know yourself very well. Your ignorance is creating an enormous amount of suffering, and you're all doing it to each other. Start paying attention. Get to know yourself. Watch how you live. Get to know your mind, your emotions, your heart. See how you eat. See how you, uh, your relationship to money. See your relationship to property, to nature. It's an ongoing new relationship to living. Uh, now, why would that be necessary? Because there's a huge amount of self-deception, and sometimes arrogance, thinking we've really got it down. We know how to live because we're adults. When I was growing up, all you had to do was buy an Adam's hat for if you were a man. I, you know, then there was this uh, commercial, I go for a man who wears an Adam's hat. I couldn't wait to grow up so I could get an Adam's hat. Uh, does it make you wise? No, it just makes you someone with an Adam's hat. And Mr. Adams, if that's his name, he does fine. But I was the same jerk with or without the Adam's hat. Okay, so... Bone-deep understanding is comes from intimate and often sustained. Sometimes it's in a second or two. It's not necessarily dependent on time, but it's certainly dependent on clarity. Intimacy, there's no separation between you and your experience. There isn't a you and your experience, but language is such that I have to express myself that way. Okay, It's a deeper kind of learning. Now, all of the learning has its place from books, from words, conceptual, and so forth. 
It's just that transformative learning, transformative learning, uh, the only thing that I have found in my life, maybe you'll find something else, I hope you do, if it's easier, is the art of, of really facing yourself, not learning how to stop running away from, my, from what? From me. Because another way of what the Buddha is saying is don't turn away from what is. Don't turn away from the facts of now. It's happening right now. Liberation, liberation happens right here and right now in a moment when you're fully attentive and not caught. Slavery happens right here and right now when you're deluded and relate to what's happening in a way that just produces suffering because you don't really know what you're doing. And we share it. Millions of people are living deluded lives. By normal standards, conventional standards, it's not deluded. We're not uh, mentally ill. We're normal people. We earn a living. We raise a family, etc., etc. And yet there's all this suffering, psychological suffering, anguish. You see where we're going. Okay, so this little sentence, when a person is constant and mindful, uh, and it must sound exhausting to you, sort of like, ah, I would never eat a meal again if I had to do all this stuff. You know? uh, but, you know, with practice, it really all becomes just one thing. It does become, but I, I don't, wouldn't use the word mind. It becomes just a real interest and an enthusiasm for uh, being fresh, for seeing your same old husband, wife, partner, parent, child, but in a fresh way. Seeing walking up the same old street. I remember for me it's Ellery Street. I, I lived there for a while. My best friend lived there. It was like 20 years. Oh, no, not Ellery Street again. The same dog, bow, wow, bow, wow, I know. I know. <laughs> same green fence, you know, and then I'll call in, the same guy will be out. Hi, hot enough for you? Yeah, yeah, it's hot enough. <laughs> and the winter, cold enough for you? Yeah, cold enough for you. Okay, and I was bored to death with Ellery Street, so I would, like, go around this street, anything, for, until one day I realized it's not Ellery Street, it's me. That is, it's become so obstinately familiar that it's dead. I'm dead. I'm walking up, El I've made Ellery Street, I'm out of Madame Tussauds Waxworks. Okay, and once I saw that, I just, the dog was very lovable, you know, and the, the guy who was saying warm enough for you, that was his way of trying to make some conversation connecting on a human level rather than, God, can't it be go deeper than cold enough for you, warm enough for you? Uh, not necessary. Uh, you see what I'm getting at? So it's about different, refining our ability to see and to learn. If you catch fire with that, you're a fortunate person, in my opinion. Now, I don't see it as we finally are done. I feel that my learning is going to go on right to, to the time of death because the challenge will be graduation, in a sense. Of course, as if you believe in f uh, future lives, then, then we have to keep going. But maybe there is, maybe there isn't. I honestly don't know. Okay. But graduation, in a sense, is I want to be awake, not gaga ga, goo when the time comes to die. I don't know if I'll be able to. I want to keep practicing. I want to, as John Wayne might put it, I want to go out in the saddle. I don't know if I'll have the good fortune of being able to do that. And I don't care. Do you see what I'm getting at? Because that's, that's the best way I've found to live. I haven't found a better way. It's not about being a Buddhist or not being a Buddhist. It's about what are my alternatives to live a life of inattention where I don't value learning, where I uh, just am embedded in self-forgetfulness in uh, self-deception 
and just repeating mechanically the same old recipes and formulas until I bore myself to death, and then I have to frantically look for all kinds of new novelties to, to give me a sense of being alive? I don't think so. I've done that to some degree. So it's an ongoing, it's beginner's mind. You've heard this terminology. They're not meant to be cliches. Beginner's mind mean hear that like a beginner. It's only valuable in that moment. And then it's, if you keep, try, if you try to freeze dry what beginner's mind taught you, then it's no longer beginner's mind. It's dead. It's Madame Tussauds waxwork. I don't know why I'm with that a lot, but anyway. <laughs> uh, okay. Now what's, what's next? And knows when enough food has been taken. Well, how do you do that? How do you know when enough food has been taken? Oh, nothing, just be mindful. I don't think so. Okay, so there's a very subtle process that th these simple lines are talking about. The degree of knowing has, has everything to do with the quality of attention you're able to bring to the process of eating. Everything I've been saying, as that ripens and matures, and it, they aren't so broken up, it's just an interested person who's eating and alive to the process of eating. It means you can enjoy food. The suffering isn't in the food. The Buddha, the king is not telling that young man to remind him of this so he can develop aversion to food. That would be ridiculous. It's, uh, food has its place and we will get to that. Uh, there's really more to go. You may have to suffer through a third week next Wednesday. Because <laughs> I, I do want to hear what you have to say. Maybe. <laughs> Depends what your questions are, you know? Um, I shouldn't say that. That's terribly not un-new age. And it's, it's not uh, user-friendly or compassionate or kind or it's politically incorrect. It's all those things. I apologize. Okay. So here are guidelines. I was in the yoga tradition for a number of years, and, and it was hatha yoga, and the guideline was simple. Uh, one half solids, food, when you eat, one quarter liquid, and one quarter empty. You would still have to pay attention. Uh, what do you just, uh, do you have some internal scale that's implanted? You have to pay attention and feel, oh, uh, now as you bring awareness to the body, the body is an extraordinarily intelligent creation. The body has intelligence, but if we haven't taken good care of it or disregarded it or not listened to it very much and just had other factors controlling how much we eat and what we eat because of what it tastes like or what's in vogue. Remember last week we got it? Oh, you weren't here, but all right. Um, you know, sushi, if we said just eat, here's some raw uncooked fish, we didn't call it sushi, would you eat it? You come over to my house, hey, here's some fish, I don't have time to cook it, just, you know. <laughs> or here's, uh, what is that uh, in New Orleans? Uh, you know, they, they, here's, what? Cajun, Cajun, Cajun. Here's some burnt fish. We just, you know, just, uh, I'm never coming back to this house again. But we say, it's Cajun. Oh, Cajun, that's different. Sushi. I can't have enough of it. Where can you get this? Where are there are any recipe books? There's a whole book on Cajun cooking, sushi. There's a restaurant specializing. Oh, let's go there next time. Okay, sure. And before you know it, we're all Cajun sushi. It's great. I'm not down on those foods, but the mind plays a huge role in taste and in decision-making. Huge, unexamined. 
Okay, so by paying attention, we can learn what moderation is. We start to recognize the body will tell us, you've had enough. Anything you do from here on in is extra. And, and then typically we, we have the possibility of learning. We don't listen to it. And then we overeat and then we feel then all the bad jokes after the meal and, you know, we fall asleep. And if you do it on retreats, then the questions are first sitting after the lunch is, uh, what do you do when you fall asleep? You know, and I say, eat less for lunch. But people don't like that. They want some meditation technique, you know, blink your eyes like this or, you know, visualize the Buddha. I don't know what. Um, so there's a sensitivity that's developed so that you're actually more capable of being attuned to your own body and learning from it. Now, when I talk about the body, I, you can see it's not just about food. Any situation is subject to the same possibility that I'm, that I'm now d- addressing here. Learning how to live is not restricted to any particular activity. As long as you're living, there's something that can be learned from life, which is finally the great teacher, if you're willing to enroll for the course. And then you also have to do the homework. Okay. So know when enough food has been taken. So you see some of the factors that go into it. Now, here I have to introduce wisdom already. For example, I'm being a bit technical tonight, and those of you beginners, I'm I'm sorry, but I feel it's necessary. How do you tell the difference between the body's reaction to food and what the mind, the stories the mind makes up about it? Sushi, etc. I mean, the mind, or when you eat, you'll see that the mind will uh, either be distracted or, and then at the end of the meal, say, that was a delicious meal and we've hardly tasted it because our mind, or it's got all kinds of views and opinions about this tastes good, this doesn't taste good, uh, and then there's a lot going on. In the main meditation sutra of the Buddha, called the Satipatthana Sutra, uh, that one, or put this way, one of the one of the a central meaning of insight, vipassana insight, is insight into the distinction between mind and body. They are interrelated, but they're distinct. You must have heard this if you've done retreats. Those of you who are going to do the beginners one, probably won't have as much. When you have physical pain. Uh, there's throb, throb, throb. And in, in, in the way it's been translated in English, it's a rather curious translation. It's the foundation, the mindfulness of the body would be the body in the body. That means pure bodily sensation, uncolored by the mind. Okay. So as now, how can you tell? Well, if you start paying attention, let's say if you take physical pain and then we'll go to food. And physical pain, sometimes it can be quite dramatic, and it's easy to learn if you're willing to. You feel some part of the body is uncomfortable or in pain, and it's not limited to meditation. And then if you pay attention, you see the mind makes up stories about what's happening. Like uh, gangrene is going to set in, that you're going to have to be carted off, uh, this practice is barbarian. I mean, you know, it's just, uh, it's not for civilized people. They couldn't possibly, uh, this guy doesn't know what he's doing, or I'm out of here. Uh, and uh, the insight would be, oh, those are what the stories that the mind makes up. Sometimes they're intelligent and helpful, but very often they're stories. And then there's the body in the body, and then what the other is called the mind in the mind. It's just pure mental construction about what's happening to the body. Okay, so that's an insight. That's an insight. 
And if you start paying attention to how you eat, you can start seeing the difference between the, the just naked attention to the process of eating, just the taste, just the chewing, just what happens, and then what the mind adds. Try it with music. See how hard it is to listen to just pure natural, just pure sound. Pick your favorite symphony. And you'll see the mind will start spinning out. Oh, that's the way it was. And I went to Vienna with, uh, with Annie or Joe. And, you know, we had a, what a wonderful time we had. But then we broke up after that. We had a fight in the cafe. And, you know, and then, you know, um, and there's just pure sound. Or this is Beethoven. Oh, it's like sushi. You know, like. <laughs> there are a lot of people who really don't like classical music. They say, do you like classical music? Oh, I love it. I love it. Can't have enough of it. How come you never turn it on then? You know, it's always this uh, hard rock. Oh, but when you put it on, I know the difference. It's just great. I like, you know, I love it. Especially if it's, who would it? Beethoven, that's right. And Mozart and those other guys from Germany and Austria and all that. Uh, so the mind is spinning out stories all the time. A lot of what liberation is, is freeing ourselves from those stories. We haven't examined it. We've taken that to be what living is. Self-knowing is, to a great extent, seeing the ways of, of selfing, the way the mind makes up stuff about what's happening to it, especially a conclusion about yourself. I'm no good. I'm wonderful. I'm this. I'm that. Uh, take even weight. I'll use myself, okay? Do you mind? Uh, I'm doing it. Probably there's some narcissism in it and uh, uh, self-centeredness, but I hope there's more than that to it. Uh, as I told you last week, I need to lose some weight. I got this. It's a graveyard for all these muffins and pies and rice pudding. Okay. Now, I'm 75 years old. To the best of my knowledge, I don't have any van- vanity about being overweight. My wife cares. Why don't you stop eating so many of those? You know, she wants me to look. I don't know what. You know, when we first met, you know, honeymoon period. I used a lean, mean fighting machine. But then after that, it wasn't necessary anymore. No. You know, okay. So on my own, I honestly don't care. It's okay. And then people think you're warmer if you're overweight, you know, you're kinder, you're more generous. Let them think that. I'm the same jerk, but, you know. Okay. But it ha- in my case, without going into it, it has uh, some health implications. And it's very important that I learn this. And that's part of why I took this sutra, because I'm not speaking from Mount Olympus. I am the king, too, along with you. So uh, don't feel judged, because I'm in there with you. And my motivation has a lot to do with, apparently, my understanding was not bone deep. And I needed some medical uh, occasion, something to happen, to convince me, and then some correlation. Say, well, the reason this X is happening is because of Y. Oh, really? So if you lost weight, that would either dramatically minimize Y or even eliminate it. Get my drift. Okay. But then if it's vanity, which, of course, often it is, then we care how, you know, if you're still uh, trying to, you know, hook up with someone, of course you care how you look. And some people, uh, my mother, I love her, bless her, to, to, she died at 90, how she looked right to the end. Uh, I could, if I once said, Mom, you're 90 years old, it's okay to, I never got the sentence out. She was... She's never been angry at me. She really let me have it. Never say that again. I said, oh, you mean I can't remind you that you're 90? No. 
I said, okay, I'm sorry. I thought it wouldn't, was no big deal. By the time you get to 90, it sh- should have still, apparently it does. Okay. It's out of my vocabulary, Mom. Okay. Um, boy, I'm a turtle. And knows when enough food has been taken. All their afflictions become more slender. Okay, now I'm going to end with this because I do want to have enough time for you guys to, for us to talk these things over. Afflictions here, as a technical meaning, it's klesa. Those of you who come from uh, Mahayana tradition, it's klesha or yogic tradition, <coughs> klesha, klesha. Uh, the translation I prefer is uh, mental toxins or mind toxins or poisons or obscurations. Uh, these are aspects, and it's greed, hatred, and delusion. Um, if, I don't like the term greed. It's a bit judgmental. So let's just say the mind that ins, insatiably wants, that mind state that all it knows how to do is want, 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 and it never seems to get enough. Or when it gets enough, then it gets bored, and then what can I want now? Okay, so our job is to earn money so that we can get, so people can work on us so that we can want something else. And now with email, uh, all kinds of exciting things you can order and get a break and, you know, this and that. So it seems like wanting is alive and well. It's not just at the time of the Buddha. Okay. Or the other is aggression, aversion, where we don't want, oh, I can't stand that trying to annihilate something, distance ourselves from it, put it down, repress it, deny it. So the mind spends a lot of time in subtle versions of both those. And, of course, the third one is ignorance or delusion. And that's the soil out of which the others come. The mind uh, thinks that if it can just get everything it wants, then it'll be happy. Have you found that to be true? You have? Good for you. What do you hear then? Yeah. I mean, externally. Exactly. Yeah. Or if you can only get rid of this, uh, if we get rid of this and then get that, then we'll be okay. Is that true? Okay. But, yeah, but then something else comes up, new forms of aversion. That's all I'm saying. In other words, these are qualities that are seem to be built in. Now, some people are very strongly aversive. They're called Adolf Hitler, and it becomes, you know, they just get joy in killing. That's how, and others, Mother Teresa, who gets joy out of love and compassion. So they're distributed in different ways. Now, also the mind, there are times when the mind is at peace. It doesn't want anything. Those are wonderful times when we're just happy to just be. And meditation, of course, more and more brings you to that, where it's okay. Everything's okay. Okay, That's a new one, right? Everyone's saying it's okay, and it's okay if it's not okay. You haven't... If it, it's making its way into the, it's rivaling mindfulness and be with it and sit with it and all that. Okay, the second one is aversion, and sometimes the mind isn't averse. It's not down on anything. In fact, it feels great love and kindness and warmth. And sometimes the third uh, affliction is ignorance or when the mind is confused, darkened, uh, unclear, uh, ambivalent. Uh, in contradiction, fight, in conflict with itself. And sometimes the mind is very clear. And it's a wonderful feeling, even relatively, when the mind is clear. And life seems simpler when the mind is clear. No, yes, okay, I don't think so. And practice is designed 
to enable the mind to, to be more clear so it can see more accurately. And it's the wi- wisdom grows out of that. So what it says is all their afflictions become more slender. And this is an important term. Slender on one level means the body, of course, because this, the king has come uh, with a problem of uh, an eating disorder, as we would call it today. And so being more slender would be a nice resolution of that. But it's a kind of double meaning. The Buddha also means your, your mental, your, these greed, hatred, and delusions start thinning out and losing their power. And that's why I'm saying even those of you who are at optimum fighting weight, and are very happy with your body, you go to the gym, you got nice tight leotards, You uh, the whole thing, there's probably something else, you know, that needs to be slenderized, something else that you want, got to have, or maybe you're addicted to or hooked on or uh, know it's no good, but you keep doing it again and again and again. Um, so slender here is the outcome of wisdom. And so what is being said, and this feeds back into what, the whole lead up to this, is that when the mind can really see the process of eating, not just be mindful of it, but also uh, alert and careful about what it's seeing and sustain that and be interested in, in what it sees, the, the, how the mind behaves and how the body behaves, and insightfully sees all that and then is able to uh, let go of what is prompting it because uh, if you're not everyone who is very overweight is doing it because of greed. There are other factors, as we know, chemical imbalances, genetics, and so forth. But often it is that. Somehow food is expected to compensate for what's not happening in our life. Or sex is expected to do that. And it doesn't quite do it. So it's uh, at best a temporary solution. Um, so then he says this, all their afflictions become more slender. They age more gradually, protecting their lives. I'll end with this, and then uh, next week we'll, I think there's a bit more to go. Um, age more gradually, common sense means even now science is telling us that, if, you know, you add, uh, you subtract years from your life if you're uh, this many pounds overweight based on research. And so the losing weight can help with longevity. But because this is a wisdom path, it means more than that. And I haven't gotten into the deepest aspects of wisdom. Next week I will. Inducement to come. Uh, not really. It'll be... Um, age more gradually and protecting their lives. Here is the deeper meaning of that. It doesn't mean just living long. I get uh, junk mail from a number of organizations. One is called the Anti-Aging Society. They want a contribution. I am not anti-aging. And they talk about the war on aging. Uh, why would I want to get sign up for that war? I know I'm going to lose. Uh, <laughs> you know, so I'm not the le- I never retire, I never donate. I could care less. And there are a number of others that, and here it's sort of like, if you live long, somehow that's fantastic. Uh, Jim lived to be 125, miserable to the last day. <laughs> Tormented, cruel, harsh, uh, but he lived to be 125 years old. Good for old Jim or Joe, whoever he was. Uh, you know, when it's bad, I always make it a guy. Again, the culture taught me that. If I said, 
Look, a good old Jane. She lived to be 120, but she was a bitch. She really hurt people. Okay, you'd be up in arms. I'd be, um, I would lose my job here. I'd have to, okay. <laughs> Especially if you, okay, I won't go into the election. Um, here's the view that was obtained at the time. It comes out of the medical, Ayurvedic medicine at the time. They valued life force, life energy. That is, it's not simply longevity. It's that a certain, what in, in the, let's say, Chinese and uh, Korean and other, uh, chi, or it's prana in the yogic tradition. But it's, um, it does, they don't, it's life energy. Uh, now, the reason for it's being valuable here is that that enables you to be able to practice more. It's not simply living long. It's that you can use those years in ways that help you get free. Okay? Um, I think I'd better end here, although there's uh, a bit more to go. I think that's uh, enough for tonight. The, uh, I just want to change the instructions. Are usually, if you're going to stay for the Q&A or discussion, whatever you, you wish, um, you can't leave in the middle of it. I, I, don't, I don't favor that rule because some of you have to get home, but you can stay for five minutes or ten minutes. It's okay. It's not rude. But those of you who need to leave now, it's a good time to leave. But to make good use of our time, could we start in right away? So if you have anything on your mind, uh, dump it on me. Yes. Well, seeing they're interrelated, but they're distinguishable. You don't want to stop. Yeah, it's called greed. It's called greed. Yeah, or the wanting mind. Yeah. Okay, but that's why you want it to continue. Okay. Now, if you decide that you're going to follow, that you want to eat moderately, then then you, you see, if you don't decide that, eat as much as you want. I, I'm not a dietitian. Do you see what I'm getting at? If you have set for yourself that you want to eat in moderation, then you can see that, of course, when things taste good, then that's what we like. And uh, we're not greedy for things we don't want. Like if you, sometimes people give gifts, and the Buddha called them beggarly giving. It's like, you don't want it anyway. Here, Oh, here's my, and you give something away that, what a piece of junk, but you take it. Oh, thank you very much. And then there's queenly and kingly giving. He didn't say queenly, but I, I think we have to update it. And that's when your gift is something you really treasure yourself. So it depends on what you've set for yourself. Then, But it's an interesting question because now you're up against your mind. And the mind is saying, I know that I should stop right now, but I can't. It's so good. Watch at that point. I'm not saying don't stop it. Now, here's what I have found. At that point, the mind will become desperate. It's like the planet is about to completely annihilate you. You are the most deprived, pitiful figure who ever lived because you can't, you can't have that texture. And you watch it. And then sometimes a little bit of reason. Is that really true? It's not true. 
so that sometimes you then have to exercise a little bit to begin with restraint and realize uh, now it's in the teachings often we know exactly what to do because what we know what's wise and what's unwise but we betray our understanding uh, uh, wisdom is living our understanding when the living and, and the wisdom are the same thing now, how to get to that point? Because a lot of what we're doing is not wise. That's the whole point of why centers like this exist and why I'm blabbing on like this. So we're unlearning uh, patterns that have, have that that are we pay a great price for them. Okay. So then, what would you do? Let's say um, now. Here's what I've discovered. Now I don't know about the texture and all that, but let's say what I've discovered is the anticipation. You know, like, oh, is that delicious? And then if you stay with it, is it really that good? Is it? Okay, okay good. Chew on. No, but I Yeah, then you have... Okay, but look, see, instead of putting up with feeling deprived, learn from it. Uh, because what you're seeing there is the price of attachment. You see, so that you have the noble truths. They're not meant to die in a book. The first noble truth is there is suffering in human life. It's due to craving and attachment. You're attached to that food. Okay, now look, let's say there's a really good reason. You have to moderate your eating for health reasons or very important reasons, whatever they may be. Or for whatever reason you've set your heart on doing that, then, uh, then that has to shift your priorities a bit. Uh, because then what you're seeing is, I know exactly when to stop, but I don't. I've betrayed my understanding, or I've betrayed myself in a way. Then you might feel guilty, and you see that. It's not about guilt. It's about learning your way out of this pattern. It's not this kind of grim, well, I just won't do that anymore. We already try to do that. It doesn't last. It lasts two weeks, and then we start in again, because it's so arduous, and it's grim and joyless. It's like... Cod liver oil, once we grow up and our mommies don't make us take it, who keeps taking cod liver oil? Well, now everyone's so health conscious. But, we, you know, once we left our mommies, we didn't take, I didn't take any more cod liver oil. You've got to be crazy. But once my mother was around, have some cod liver oil. It's good for your bones and it's good for your, okay, okay. So, do you see what I'm getting at? So it's got an active, ongoing, participative aspect practice. It's not mechanical. You see, oh, look how desperate the mind gets. Learn, see it with some compassion for yourself. But what I found is very often um, the anticipation of it, of what you think you want or you want, is it's not as good as what the mind cracks it up to be. Okay, let me give you an example. Just today, my uh, I live in a three-story, the second story, uh, he gets a lot of, you know, it's, it's, cause I'm, I teach often at night and on weekends, so I'm home during the day. And then packages are delivered and they mainly go to the second floor from Amazon, you know, this and there's books and this and that. And I get it once in a while too and I order something, you know, and, you know, sometimes I'll feel like, oh, there goes one for Susan again, another book from Amazon. Uh, and then I saw and I say, well, you're, you're, in, you're in, uh, leading the race between third floor and first, you know, uh, in terms of, and she said, yeah, I know, but uh, let me tell you what that's like. It, I say, I know what it's like. When you come home from work, it's exciting to see the package waiting for you, isn't it? Oh, it's a great feeling. It's a great feeling ordering online and reading about it, ordering it. And then I come home from work. I'm tired. Oh, there it's waiting for me. 
Oh, and then I opened it up and said, I have a whole stack of books. I don't have time to read them. But it, so it gives you a good feeling. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Okay. Anyone else? Please. Good. I understand. You know, it wasn't that. It was a simple phrase in a book. Renunciation is simply giving up what's extra. And the deeper I go into it, the more things are extra. But in the beginning, it was just this opportunity to give up, to give up what was extra. And uh, see, I, I, the years have made me pragmatic. Does that help you? Yeah. I'm all for it. Whatever helps you. Eventually, you won't need it. The seeing itself is enough. But to begin with, we, all, we do need intelligence, the right thinking. We, we do need help there. So that's good. Yeah. Please. One day I saw I had no craving, and I was very surprised. I said, oh, I have no craving to. And um, other days I do. And one time I ate, I really liked some chocolate bit, bits from Finajos. I said, don't go into any brownies, but just go into my mouth. And um, and I remember telling someone that um, I was having an acupuncture treatment, and she was saying, "Oh, your spleen is low." And, and I kept telling her, "Oh, I have a very good diet." And ah, I said, "I did have a few sweets." And ah, she said. And last night uh, I was faced with a choice. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I thought, oh. I would like some, something sweet. And I was faced with a choice. Shall I take it? And, oh, don't, and my mind was already saying, just a little bit. Just, you know, you've had a hard day. And the other side was saying, but then you pay a price. Your spleen will be low, the acupuncturist will tell, da-da-da, you need to put more needles over there. And I thought, you know what? It's not worth it. So... Okay. Yes. No, no, we can't rest on any laurels in my experience. But look, here's typically, here's how the mind works, and this may be an example of what you mean. Typically, we overestimate the satisfaction that what we crave will provide, and we underestimate the price that we're paying for it in terms of suffering or whatever, health or something damaging. And wisdom is starting to learn. See, what the Buddha is saying here is to learn your way out of this problem. It's not just a grim act of will, like I'm just going to not eat that anymore. I'm going to be moderate. Uh, it isn't that. It's through seeing. It's through wisdom, through understanding. But wisdom, real wisdom, not just wise words, is premised on mindfulness plus you know, uh, wise attention and so forth. And out of that can come a quality of learning which enables you to stop doing it out of understanding. Understanding can have, when I say bone deep, that means the understanding is so deep that you you don't want to do it anymore. It's just stupid. You don't need to do it. I also noticed I didn't have a sense of dissatisfaction. It was okay. All right. But let's say you, you did. So then that's what you practice with. But not to try and get rid of it but just to see how much is still holding on to it and that the holding produces suffering. 
And little by see, we're not, we hear a lot about letting go, non-attachment, and we're in a hurry to do that. That sounds good. It is. But one teacher I had, Ajahn Chah, he was great. He said, don't be in a hurry to let go. Find out, do you really know that attachment leads to suffering, craving and attachment? Say, oh, yeah, you know, we read it and we hear it over and over again. It makes sense. But that isn't the kind of knowing. In a moment of really holding on and, and not being in a hurry to let go, but seeing the price we pay for that, then the learning is at a deeper level. Is everyone, do you follow what I'm trying to say? It's experiential learning. It's not just up here. Mm-hmm. Yes, please. Um, I find that I can't let go almost until I know where I'm going, where I'm, what the next day is, that, that sort of that greed, that want, that sense of satisfaction. And so when I, when I think about letting go, it's almost like fear. That's right, of the unknown. The, 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 the unknown. Of That's the right. These are all ideological statements, grace and all. You know, uh, look, you can hear... It doesn't feel good to exactly. go necessarily. And I, but I know still that the thing is not good for you. You know it as an idea. Yeah. But you don't know it... <clears throat> yeah. Now, let's... Uh, okay. Yes, I did. No, it's through the seeing, it's the gradual, sustained attention, learning, it goes deeper and deeper. But look, let's, let's take what you're saying. Welcome to the human race. We're all afraid of the unknown. Uh, let's take, keep it in a meditative context. The mind can become very, very silent. And most people, everyone I know, until they learn about it, pulls up short. We're afraid of the, of, of that spacious silence. Because what is it that's afraid? It's the me, the sense of me. There's no because me is not there. In real in real silence, you real silence can't exist if you are there because you are the noisemaker. See, so now, so what to do? How does bone deep? You get you're quite you're right. Okay, so a lot of what the Buddha is teaching is simply don't turn away from what is. So if fear turns up. Don't try to be heroic. Look at the fear. I see a blank, no connection here. No, I, 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 <laughs> oh, I didn't say what you want to hear. Something. No, no, no. Don't name it. That's what I understand. It's a technique. Throw the word fear out. F E A R is a negative conditioner. We don't, is there anyone who just loves to be terrified? I doubt it. Okay. Keep going. See, what you don't, I just told you. No, no. Are you new to the practice? Yeah, this is not meant as an insult. Are you new?